electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. I am Morgan Brennan, and here is what's ahead. We've got interest rates falling. The 10-year down to 1.31%. Technical levels point to an even bigger drop. In an hour, we will get those minutes from the Fed from the last Fed meeting. When the committee started to sound a bit more hawkish, we're going to debate which way rates are going to go next. Plus, Chinese stocks selling off again. Did U.S. investors overestimate how committed China was to capitalism? And how welcoming is it to outside investors? Plus, more people are paying with crypto. You heard that right. More people are drinking hard seltzer, too. And some people are working less but getting paid the same. That is coming up in rapid fire. But we are going to begin with the markets here on the exchange. And Dom Chu has the numbers for us. Dom. The numbers are green at this point in the market here. And right near session highs, Morgan, we're going to put gold stars next to the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ composite. Both of those major indices hit record highs at some point earlier in the session. Keep an eye on those. And by the way, as a point of reference, we are tilting higher right now. At the highs of the day, we were up roughly 15 points in the S&P and at the lows down relatively 14 points. So that's where we are within that trading range on an intraday basis. You mentioned the interest rate picture. Mid-February, that's the last time we saw 10-year yields trade at these kinds of levels here. So again, as you watch those particular trades happen, is there more weakness ahead in yields, more strength in those Treasury bond prices? That's going to be a key one to watch. As for the reverberations, two key parts of the market that are impacted in some way by this are financials. You can see Bank of America and Citigroup both relatively weak on the day. Those big banks, a key focus with rates where they are right now in, this, in the scale. But lower interest rates also help power some of the more growth-oriented technology valuations. Apple and Amazon both up on the session right now, so that's something else to watch. And then speaking of interest rates, housing, a very big focus. As interest rates creep higher, the affordability goes down. But when interest rates go lower, check out these home builders, Pulte Group, DR Horton, Lennar, all among the best performers in the S&P 500 today. And an ETF that tracks it is up 2% as well. So Morgan, Everything has in some way affected by interest rates. Those are the key ones to watch. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom Chu. Thank you. That's a good way to kick this off. Let's get more on that sharp move that we have seen lower in yields ahead of the release of the Fed's minutes from the June meeting. Rick Santelli is here with a look at what is behind that slide in rates. And Rick, I'm hearing a lot of different narratives kick around right now. Oh, yes, there's lots of different narratives. But the best narrative, in my opinion, is always follow the money and always know where the positions are. We had a parking lot that was looking for higher interest rates. It doesn't happen overnight when you start to redirect the cars out of one trade, maybe into another. Here's an intraday chart of 10s. Notice that scallop pattern lower in yield. And on the two-day chart, you can see it accelerated when we started to trade under yesterday's low yield. That's classic momentum building. And the reason? Well... Yesterday, you had the service sector ISM, for example. The employment index dipped below 50. So jobs, jobs, jobs always important. And we learned this morning, 9,209,000 job openings in jolts. But the trick is matching the openings with the people. And it may take a bit longer and it gets a little bit messy. 
productivity with the supply issues, all of those are a growth story that we're taking away some yield on the Treasury complex, even though maybe inflation might have moderated a bit. Many are saying it's kind of stagflation and less growth. And there you go. And if you look at the chart, we haven't closed 10 years at this level, as Don pointed out, since the 10th of February, um, I'm sorry, 18th of February, 30-year bonds though, made it all the way down to 190, uh, uh, 191, 193, and that trade we haven't seen since the 10th. So it is very important to watch the entire curve. Very quickly, look at that dollar index. It's jumped over the last two significant tops on pace for its best close in three months. Morgan, back to you. Oh, I'm glad you brought up the dollar index, Rick. The fact that we have seen that strengthening there, what is that indicating given this broader conversation we are having about rates? You know, it really is counterintuitive. Rates going down shouldn't be good for a country's dollar or foreign exchange side. But it is in this instance, and I really do think it's technically driven on both sides. Rates are going down for technical reasons. The dollar's going up. Look for the dollar move to last longer than the rate move. All right, Rick Santelli, thank you. What will this mean for investors if rates continue to drop? Well, joining, Matt, joining me now to break that down, Jason Brady, president and CEO of Thornburg Investment Management, and Guy Labah, chief fixed income strategist at Janney Montgomery. Scott, gentlemen, good afternoon to you both. Guy, I'll start with you. Uh, do you agree with what Rick Santelli just said about why we're seeing the move lower in rates right now? Yeah, I mean, peak inflation fears, at least as the markets are pricing them in, kind of came through in mid-March or so. And since that point, we've been declining in inflation pricing. And my sense is that a lot of real money buyers, uh, such as funds and pensions, entities like that, were a little bit shorter than target duration after the sell-off early in the year. And with inflation expectations declining, giving a little bit of an all-clear signal, they've been waiting back in over the course of the last several weeks. The last few days, however, is more about financials, financial institutions who have been adding assets, uh, adding duration after the end of the second quarter reporting period. Jason, I want to get your thoughts on this, and specifically whether you think yields are going higher or lower in the near term term and what that means for how you're positioning or how, how you think investors should be positioning themselves in other markets, for example, equities. Sure. So uh, clearly rates are driving a lot of the narrative today and frankly over the course of this year, really since November when we saw uh, the shift uh, from growth to value and now a little bit back again the other way. I want to sort of cast our minds back a little bit and remember when the actual Fed uh, meeting occurred and folks got really scared about much higher rates. Uh, since then, what we've seen is not a rollover in the economy at all, but a slight moderation from what was really a huge and aggressive reopening trade. So look, I think in the near term, we still have some positioning. I think Rick, Rick is right, some positioning to kind of flow through. Uh, ultimately, I, I would expect higher yields, not because growth is going to be blowout, uh, but because today real yields are really, really low. And on the horizon is not a Fed that's going to be aggressive, but a Fed that is going to be tapering. So then would you expect, I guess, I realize you expect rates eventually to climb up. But in the near term, the rotation we've seen back out of those so-called reopening, uh, reflation trades into things like big tech, for example, do you expect that to have some legs here? Or is this really just summer gyrations? I mean, it's definitely summer gyrations. Uh, I think what we'll get is earnings uh, shortly from the financials in particular. Uh, Daniel Pinto was on the tape uh, recently talking about how trading conditions are going to continue to improve from here, albeit with tough comps from last year. 
So I think actually the catalyst for a reexamination of that rotation is going to be earnings. It's going to be fundamentals. And I think that will be a time when uh, financials and, and other sort of reflationary trades uh, regain some traction. Guy, I want to get your thoughts on what you expect to see from those Fed minutes later today. I mean, obviously, a couple weeks ago, we got a slightly more hawkish or maybe I should just say less dovish Fed, um, but still a lot of question marks about uh, a, a taper timeline, about what constitutes substantial progress. Uh, are you expecting any kind of um, changes to that narrative or that dialogue this afternoon? We're very unlikely to get any sort of bright lines out of the FOMC minutes. So for, from my standpoint, the biggest shift that accompanied the, uh, the June FOMC meeting was the slightest hint that policymakers were less confident in the average inflation targeting regime, right? And so that raised concerns about perhaps premature rate hikes in the event of slightly higher inflation numbers. And that's a lot of what I expect is behind the flattening curve in the subsequent period. Now, the FOMC's minutes, they tend to massage or emphasize certain points that the Fed wants to make that have emerged between when the meeting happened and when those minutes are released. So I think what we'll see actually is a few lines on greater confidence and reinforcing policymakers' belief in their average inflation targeting regime rather than a discussion of tapering itself. Uh, and in the absence of further buying on the part of some of those foreign banks and other financial institutions that I mentioned a moment ago, you know, that could be the, the end or the beginning of the end, if you will, of this most recent rally on the long end of the curve. All right. Well, we'll see what we get in the next 50 minutes. Jason Brady and Guy Labat, thank you for joining us today, kicking off this hour. Thank you. Well, despite the drop in rates, mortgage applications fell for the second week in a row, hitting their lowest level since January of last year. So that is before the pandemic. Applications to refinance also took a hit and are now down 8% versus a year ago. That's after trending lower for about four months. At the same time, CoreLogic's latest report shows that home prices in May saw their highest year-over-year gain since 2005. Now, they expect higher prices to persist until the middle of next year meaning it might be a while until we actually see demand start to tick up again. So with mortgage apps and rates both falling at the same time, could this be the first sign of a slowing housing market? And with it, the sectors that have soared. My next guest says fears of a demand slowdown might be overblown and that names that built uh, big gains, get it, built on the housing boom, will continue to rally. So for more, let's bring in Michael Rehart, executive director and senior home builders and home products analyst at J.P. Morgan. Michael, great to have you on. Um, I, I read you. all of those different data points, and the headline is inventory, not enough in inventory, inventory shortage, which I know our own Diana Olick has been talking about for quite some time. So, so given the landscape, the fact that housing has essentially been on fire, but there just isn't enough of it right now, what do you consider to be buys or investing opportunities within your coverage universe? Great. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, we, we cover both the home builders and the building products names. And, you know, on the home building side, it's our contention that some of the softness that you've recently seen in terms of mortgage per purchase apps or, or other industry data points is more being driven by not just supply being tight, but by a lot of the builders being sold out or managing their sales pace. And so really not being as much of a demand issue as more of a moderation of, of activity 
by the producers themselves. And, and, and that's in effect a good problem. You know, we're positive overall on the home building side um, with, with an upside uh, potential to our price targets of over 30%, as we believe that the housing cycle isn't over, uh, that there's at least two or three more years to go and that earnings can continue to grow over that time. Uh, that being said, on the hmm. product side, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. On the product side. Uh, on, uh, thanks. On the product side, we, we have a report out today in which we highlighted top picks for the back half of this year. Um, uh, and, and on the building product side, there's a little bit of a different dynamic where DIY demand uh, is starting to slow a little bit. Uh, and so we favor certain names that have uh, easier comps in the back half that didn't participate in that strong, robust uh, rebound in the back half of 20. Uh, that would be uh, Whirlpool and uh, Mohawk. Um, while at the same time, we downgraded Masco uh, to underperform uh, or underweight as we expected to underperform its peers. That's really more caught in the eye of the storm right now in terms of deceleration. Uh, excuse me, in terms of deceleration um, and, and having some tough comps, specifically with DIY and paint uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm just curious, when you say that you think the housing market has some legs, that this could go another two to three years, what are the biggest risks to that thesis? I mean, certainly we just talked about it, the, the talk of taper, right? And MBS, mortgage-backed securities, is a, is a part of that equation. Um, if you see the Fed start to unwind some of that, um, if you do start to see rates uh, begin to climb up. Does that impact this entire investment thesis or no, it doesn't matter. There's just not enough homes and it's a resilient trade. So, you know, the way we think about rates is that, um, you know, during the period of a, of a sharp move up in rates, that will all, almost always cause a pause in activity. Um, you know, what's interesting right now is that rates have actually receded, as you were saying before. Uh, but, um, you know, with the 10 year at, at 1.3, um, you know, I, I would and just a few weeks ago, a couple a week or two ago, 1.5. I, I don't think you really get significant damage to the housing market uh, until you're in a perhaps a 1.8 to 2.0 type of a range. Um, and even then, it, it's more of a kind of a temporary impact It more causes a, a pause in activity. But when you take a step back and you look at the longer term, um, you know, housing starts right now are just getting back to plus or minus long term averages. Um, uh, right. I, I think okay. the most recent data point was one point six million. Um, you go back to the last cycle. Uh, there were eight years well above those long term averages. And we're coming off of an unprecedented 12 years when we were below those long term averages. Yeah. Uh, how could we forget, right? The great financial crisis and the housing boom and bust uh, that brought us in many ways to this conversation that we're having today. Michael Rehart, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Well, coming up, U.S. listed Chinese firms are in the red again as Beijing's tech crackdown continues to ramp up. Is there a China discount that the market is ignoring or are companies not warning investors enough about the risks to start with? We're going to explore that debate where all of this goes from here. Plus, the end of the Jedi. The Pentagon canceling its up to $10 billion cloud contract, but it is launching a new multi-vendor cloud contract under a different name. Both Amazon and Microsoft hitting all-time highs today on this news. We're going to break that down. The exchange is back after this.
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to The Exchange. Beijing is expanding its scrutiny of U.S.-listed Chinese tech companies following Didi's IPO last week. The regulatory pressure could upend China's ADR market and even threaten future IPOs that are in the pipeline. The increased Chinese crackdown has some wondering if investors are discounting the risk of investing in these stocks and whether these companies disclosing whether these companies are disclosing enough of the risk. Well, joining me now to dig into both of those key questions, Fred Kemp, Atlantic Council CEO, and Marco Popich, uh, Clock Tower Group Chief Strategist. Strategist, she can speak. Uh, thank you for joining me, um, Fred. I'll start with you. I mean, it really seems like the question, the overarching question here is: Is this really this crackdown we're seeing in China? Is this really about? data and ramifications for national security, or is this really a sea change in terms of Chinese companies looking to list overseas and the country not liking that? Well, I I, I think what it does is it underscores the the Chinese Communist Party, which celebrated its 100th birthday uh, last week. And don't forget, Diddy wanted to do its IPO, uh, actually schedule its IPO for June 30th, one day ahead of the party, decided not to ring the bell, decided not to market it. So it knew that something was a little off here. And it shows that the party is sending a message to the companies, particularly tech companies, we're in charge, you're not in charge. And it's it's got to be sending a message to investors, particularly U.S. investors, but not only, uh, that we can change the rules that are going to reduce uh, the worth of a listed stock overnight. And there's no way you can predict that. So I don't know how one can actually uh, disclose risk when the only people who know what the risk is are the leaders of the party and President Xi Jinping. And he can change the rules on these companies at any time. Yeah. I mean, just to dig into that a little bit more, Marco, I mean, you go back to last fall, right? And what we saw in terms of China's scrutiny of Ant. Financial, as that company was looking to go public as well. I mean, there have been a number of these incidents in, in recent months. So I think it raises the question, has the market, at least the market here and investors here, overlooked or perhaps underestimated the risks of investing in Chinese tech companies? Well, I, I think the market... Marco. Sorry. Was that for me? That's so, for Marco. Okay, sorry. Yes. Uh, thank you. So, no, I, I, w- I would say not really, because if you look at the internet stock companies, Chinese internet tech companies, they have been underperforming non-internet tech companies since February. So that's the first issue. And there's really three things going on here. First of all, China is trying to show that it cares about its data privacy as much as the US. So just a little bit of a tit for tat. Second, regulators told Diddy, do not do an IPO. Just because your shareholders want to cash out, we have more digging to do. 
Uh, did he chose to side with his foreign shareholders, not the domestic regulator? Obviously, that irked Beijing. But there's a bigger uh, issue here as well. Investors have to understand that Beijing actually doesn't consider these soft tech companies as innovation. If you look at the ChiStar, um, so, yeah, sorry, SciTech Innovation Board, Star, um, that is a new exchange where you can IPO non-profitable companies, but only hard tech that actually have technological innovation. That's something that China favors. China believes in those uh, innovation companies as the true future. And this kind of internet place that are really just a modification of a business model is not something Beijing favors. It will continue to crack down on internet tech companies. But tech companies overall have done very well since February in China. All right, Fred. So, so um, I guess to piggyback off of that question, which I know you clearly have some thoughts on, um, you know, DealLogic says that Chinese companies have raised over $75 billion in U.S. IPOs since 2012. Um, reportedly, there's another something like three dozen that are apparently in the pipeline to go public here in the U.S. What does this do to all of those future companies and their fundraising possibilities? Well, there have been 35 uh uh, launches this year in the U.S., uh, new listings of Chinese companies. And I think what the investors have to do is look at which of them are involved in data, which of them are involved in Internet, which of them are involved in AI. And those are the ones I think one has to take a, a fresh look at. I think what you've really touched on is the uh, that this is more about lost potential than lost money now. Uh, you know, we work with Rhodium Group uh, at the Atlantic Council and uh, sort of extrapolating out uh, what reforms in China could be worth. And you could have by 2030, $45 trillion flowing to the Chinese market. Uh, but if the party continues to crack down, and, and they're not just cracking down on companies, there, there's also more repression internally. It's what's going on uh, in Xinjiang province. It's what's mm. going on in Hong Kong. If this continues to be the trend, I think it will have a chilling effect on the potential uh, that's out there for investment coming into China, but also companies being able to uh, tap uh, investment um, in places like New York. And don't forget, the reason these companies go to New York is New York investors are more uh, willing to bear risk and take risk than at this point Hong Kong or Shanghai, Shanghai investors are. Yeah, I mean, that's a key point. Uh, Marco, I mean, meantime, as we have this conversation, we're seeing the powers uh, and the review potential of CFIUS continue to expand as well. We've seen that for several years now. And now you have reports that the Biden administration is going to continue to uh, expand uh, that scrutiny and that regulatory ability as well. Uh, looking out over not only the coming months, but now the coming years, do you foresee a greater decoupling of these two economies, at least from perhaps a tech or, or financial standpoint? You know, Morgan, uh, Fred is right. I mean, there is definitely greater scrutiny on the on the Chinese side, and there is also on the U.S., as you point out. Um, I would actually say that far more relevant than CFIUS is really the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, which has now been accelerated. Um, I think over the next two years, you will see a, a lot of delisting. The Biden administration, much like the Trump administration, maybe even more focused on this issue, actually. But what is the actual winner here? Fred is right. There isn't much appetite for risk. I mean, Chinese regulators themselves are saying, look, we're not going to let the star um, platform be available to non-profitable, soft tech, non-innovative business model innovation companies like Internet stocks. But that does open up an opportunity for the Hong Kong financial system, which many investors actually left for dead 
in 2019 after the protests because you have to you basically have Beijing and Washington in agreement in a way um, none of them want IPOs in the US markets China doesn't really want them on A shares the A share market is not ready for this and so the real winner here is is Hong Kong all right we're gonna leave the conversation there gentlemen uh, I'm sure we're not done talking about it either Fred Kemp and Marco Popich thanks for being with us today well, coming up, shares of this hard seltzer maker have fizzled out over the past three months, down more than 20%. But one firm is upgrading the stock, saying seltzer is on track for a turnaround. We're going to bring you that name for this mystery chart next. And Amtrak is full speed ahead with a multi-billion dollar investment in its fleet. We are going to hear from the CEO on what it means for the future of rail and infrastructure in this country. And finally, as we head to break, Check out some of the names that are trading at all-time highs today. Alphabet, Chipotle, Costco, American Express, although that's right at the flat line now, and of course Target, so stay with us. And don't forget, by the way, you can watch us live using the CNBC app. The Exchange will be right back. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Here is your CNBC News update at this hour. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland has been briefed on the shooting of three undercover officers in Chicago. Two of them were federal agents, the third a member of Chicago's police force. Their injuries are not considered to be life-threatening and no arrests have been reported just yet. Efforts are underway to medevac Haiti's first lady, Martine Moise, to Miami. She is in critical condition after surviving that attack that killed President and her husband, Jovenel Moise. In New York, a ticker tape parade to honor essential workers for helping the nation and the city of New York get through the pandemic. Some 2,500 people and 13 bands took part in the parade through the city's canyon of heroes. And on the news, what would we have done without them? Thanking COVID heroes as America strives to get back to normal. And Morgan, the grand marshal of the parade, was the first person in the U.S. to get the COVID vaccine, that nurse out in Queens. So really nice to, to see today's festivities. I'll send it back to you. Oh, that's fantastic. I didn't realize that. Those of us who are down at the stock exchange earlier today on Wall Street got a front row seat. So it's lovely oh, to cool. hear that. Yeah. Rahel Solomon, thank you. Markets right now are losing some steam. The Nasdaq is back in the red, as you can see right there, but barely. It's basically flat for the hour right now. The Dow is hovering near the flat line as well. That is up just a mere 28 points. And the S&P right now is up about two-tenths of a percent. So energy is the biggest laggard. That is continuing its reversal after notching its best first half of the year since the sector's inception. The OPEC goings-on are very much in focus there right now, given what we've seen in the crude market. Here are some of the movers this hour. More specifically, though, electronics-focused online retailer Newegg which, thanks to the meme mania, get a load of this chart, is up 128% today. It is up 460% in the past two days. And in fact, this stock had a market cap of less than $10 million at the end of June. It is now valued at more than $20 billion. Let that one sink in. Also, EV makers Tesla and NEO are moving lower as Mizuho reiterates that it has a buy rating on about both of those stocks. Nonetheless, we're seeing some pressure there, some selling there. The firm says they are well positioned in the market as legacy automakers struggle to balance between combustion engines and EVs. Both of those stocks are down about 30% from the recent highs. And for more on that call, you can head over to cnbc.com pro. Now, in the meantime, coming up after this break, Rapid Fire is next. 
That Jedi contract is back in play, or maybe we should say not back in play. There are new rules for hard seltzer and Iceland's experiment with a four-day work week. Those are all stories we're going to be digging in on after this. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines, Frank Holland, Molly Wood, host and senior editor of Marketplace Tech, and Mike Santoli. Good afternoon to the three of you. First, some big news out of the Pentagon. The Department of Defense is calling off that up to $10 billion Jedi cloud contract, which was awarded to Microsoft uh, by the Trump administration and had been the source of multiple protests, including a legal fight between the U.S. government and Amazon for the better part of two years. Now the DOD is announcing a new program. This is a new multi-vendor uh, contract that is going to be looking for requests for proposals from. Uh, Microsoft and Amazon expected to be the potential winners there in the coming months. That program called Joint Warfighter Cloud Capability, or JWCC, not quite as sexy as Jedi. But Mike Santoli, the fact that we are seeing these big heavy hitter tech names at new highs on a potential new government cloud competition says what about the market more broadly? Well, I think the market has been kind of trending in the, in the direction of those types of stocks in the first place. We also have Apple up today. It's not really in the running for something like this. But I do think, you know, it just sort of comes as a, a fairly pragmatic uh, solution here, both because it was you know, going to be caught up in some litigation uh, for a while and, and, you know, never had to be kind of a winner take all, you know, single thing. I also think the market has moved beyond the idea that this particular contract was going to be some kind of crucial endorsement of one company or another's, you know, better mousetrap in this regard. So it seems like it reinforces the idea there's multiple players in this area. The overall pie is growing so fast uh, that they, they can all kind of thrive in some corners of it. Yeah, Molly, I mean, we're talking about a very specific contract for a very specific agency within the U.S. government, but it does speak more broadly to this turf war, if you will, that we have seen within cloud, whether it is Microsoft or Amazon or even to a lesser extent Google or, or IBM right now. I mean, what's so interesting is that you have the Department of Defense writing a brief that essentially says, we're going to restart this contract process, even though only these two companies, which are named, have the technological capability mm -hmm. to meet that contract. That is kind of a weird position to find ourselves in when really there are only three providers, Microsoft, Amazon, and Google, that do this at all. And you have D DOD saying, you know, the future of our military depends on these two stopping fighting and maybe both of them getting a trophy. Yeah, it's such a key point because you're talking about capabilities and a conversion to the cloud and security um, clearances, et cetera, that literally translate to life and death, Frank Holland. Um, and I think it also just speaks to, and certainly it's been in focus for investors on the private sector side as we come out of the pandemic, really the digitization of everything, right? And where not only the future of warfare in the case of this cloud contract that the DOD is concerned, but really the future of everything as every company, as every entity tries to become uh, a tech entity, essentially. Yeah, you know, basically, I mean, it, just from a business perspective, Amazon appears to be the winner. They went from getting nothing out of this deal to potentially getting a piece of this new thing that you mentioned. Isn't it sexy? The joint warfighter capability doesn't sound as good as Jedi. <laughs> but just in general, I think uh, Microsoft actually made a pretty solid point in their blog post is that a lawsuit can hold up uh, technology that, that the Department of Defense deemed as critical for defending our nation's troops and our country. 
And this lawsuit's held things up when there's only two people that could have done it and they know who both the people are. And their internal review found that, you know, one company was better. Yeah, I mean, that's such a key point because we have always seen uh, the more established defense contractors. Protests are not uncommon to the DOD, but we've always seen them tend to protest through the GAO. You sort of have this new crop of contractors, the Amazons and Microsofts and, and basically defense startups, if you will, that are coming to do business now and are taking a much more legal approach. And so far, notably, they've been winning. And that's not to say that Amazon won in court here because they did not. Um, but the fact that Jedi was even scrapped because of how long it was taking, I think, is particularly notable. All right, so we're going to move on to another hot topic right now. That is uh, Signal Crypto. The Signal Crypto is going mainstream. Visa says consumers spent more than a billion dollars through crypto-linked credit cards in the first half of the year. And new research from MasterCard found that 93% of North American consumers plan to use cryptocurrencies or other alternative payments in the next year, cryptos started the year red hot, but have cooled off with Bitcoin, Ether, and Dogecoin. Just the fact that we're even saying that in an update now, all negative in the past month. And Molly, I start with you. I mean, so much of the long term, I guess, bull case around something like Bitcoin has been um, not just a, a trading or a hedge against inflation, but this idea of broader, more mainstream payment usage and adoption as well. Is this a sign that we could be moving more in that direction? I mean, this is the key to the whole thing. And it's been such an interesting place for financial institutions to be in because ultimately the, the aim of cryptocurrency, you know, its development was hinged on the idea of undermining and even overthrowing traditional financial financial institutions. And here we are in a position where, you know, unless Visa, for example, makes it easy for people to pay with cryptocurrency, it never becomes a currency and it never becomes more than, you know, a really big asset class with increasing climate concerns attached to it. So this is the key to widespread adoption of cryptocurrency and the potential future where banks find themselves in a position they don't really want to be in. Yeah, absolutely. But in the meantime, you do have these companies, Frank Holland, like Visa, also MasterCard that have been making more moves in the crypto space as well. Uh, and you got to think that when you see numbers like this, that that's potentially a, a good bet. Well, I mean, first we got to put this in context. Um, this one billion is just a fraction of the daily payment activity mm. on a network like MasterCard or unlike Visa. But when I spoke to Visa's CFO about this, he said, listen, Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies, they have a lot of volatility, but it's up to the consumer to manage that. Their business is payments. If you want to spend your cryptocurrency on sneakers or at the grocery store, they're just trying to make it happen. But if I had diamond hands for Bitcoin or other stable coins, this would be a really encouraging sign that one billion in the first half of 2021, multiple times higher than 2020 and 2019. So the trend is very obvious. Hmm. I just like that you slipped diamond hands in there. Okay, we're going to move on to topic three. Credit Suisse is bullish on bubbles. The bank is upgrading shares of Boston Beer to outperform, saying the momentum of its truly hard seltzer brand can drive a 60% rally from here. Credit Suisse says that while overall growth is slowing, truly is gaining ground on market leader White Claw and that it's best equipped to take on the, quote, new rules emerging in the hard seltzer segment. Frank, what are these new rules? Well, the new rules, according to Credit Suisse, is that hard seltzer, it's not just for drinking at home anymore. They believe the reopening of the economy, bars and restaurants especially, will open up new opportunities to sell hard seltzer, whether it be through sponsorships, things like samplings. I mean, people haven't really been to bars where they can just try a new brand of hard seltzer. So if you were drinking one before the pandemic, you're probably still drinking that one because you haven't had a lot of reasons to venture out to new ones. And then also, there's just the possibility 
for your favorite athlete to sponsor one or something like that. So we're looking at the market share right now. White Claw is the dominant player in the market, but Credit Suisse also put out some research. If you look at the growth of, of hard seltzer without White Claw, it's 132% higher uh, as opposed to 5% higher. So White Claw sales hmm. are actually kind of decelerating. Um, another important thing to think about here is that Hard seltzer sales in general have been decelerating as we enter the summer. Kind of counterintuitive. People generally thought as the, the things opened up, people would buy more seltzer because it's, it travels well. It's not as temperature sensitive as beer or some other yeah. things to drink. Um, Credit Suisse saying they believe that seltzer consumption, that's going to triple by 2025. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, to that point, Mike Santoli, Boston Beer has not had a particularly good run. I think it's down 20 some odd percent over the past three months. Right, but it's really just giving back a chunk of this massive gain that happened beforehand. It was very much an unexpected kind of stay-at-home pandemic play. If you looked at a, you know, a two-year chart, it just actually uh, started to race higher right in the spring of last year. And so it is suffering, I think, on the back end of it. Probably also because that market share scrap, I mean, 29% share is maybe not the place you'd want to start if you have multiple players coming in and the big brewers, you know, trying to ramp things up. And who knows what that means for, you know, exactly how things go in terms of distribution and pricing. So I I get it uh, in terms of this being a good tailwind for the business overall. Sam, as a company, is much more uh, kind of expert in the on-premise, you know, kind of distribution in bars and things like that. But I, I don't know. It seems also a little bit of a muddled brand message because Sam was always about craft and not the mass produced thing. Is yeah. Seltzer, does it even slide into that at all? Yeah, it's true. It's going to be interesting too to see what THC spike seltzers are going to do to this entire debate over the coming years with all the legalization afoot uh, as well. Okay, so we're going to move on to our last topic. Let's head to Iceland. The country's government and capital city conducted large scale trials of four day work weeks. And here's what they found, that working fewer hours for the same pay led to improved well-being and no productivity loss. Obviously, Iceland is a very different country from the U.S. It's a much smaller country. But even here, a 2020 survey by the Harris Poll found that four out of every worker, every five workers favor a four-day work week. I mean, Molly, perhaps not surprising to hear that, especially coming out of the pandemic and the fact that folks have been working at home and the lines have been blurred, et cetera. But I thought what was most notable about this Iceland study is that it was conducted over the course of four or five years pre-pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I think that in some ways this Iceland study just mimics what moms already know, which is (laughs) that the less time I waste, the more time I get done. And the fact is we waste and we realize this even more during the pandemic. So I don't think it's, you know, just about a small workforce in Iceland, what we realized is we waste a lot of time in meetings. We waste a lot of time walking up and down hallways when we could actually be potentially multitasking. And I think it's it's this kind of like almost government spending question, where can we cut waste and get more done and then be happier as people? And it does come down to measuring productivity and success in slightly different ways. Yeah, well, I think until the markets uh, move to a four day work week, We're probably all going to be here working five days. I know that's definitely going to be the case for Frank Holland and Mike Santoli. Um, Molly Wood, thanks for joining us as well. It was a great rapid fire. See you guys later. (laughs) Well, Amtrak, meantime, getting a big chunk of infrastructure money. We're going to hear from the head of the company about the spending and what needs to be fixed. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back. President Biden's infrastructure plan includes $66 billion for passenger trains. Now, some of that money is going to be going to Amtrak. Seema Modi today speaking with the head of Amtrak about the improvements that that money will help buy. Seema. 
Morgan, it's one of the railroad's biggest investments in the last 50 years. We're talking a $7.3 billion contract with Siemens Mobility to build 83 new trains outfitted with better Wi-Fi, USB ports, more legroom. Uh, the goal is that these fleets will replace about 40% of its aging trains, but it really comes down to funding. While Amtrak has secured about $200 million from Congress, CEO William Flynn says it's going to rely heavily on President Biden's infrastructure bill that has yet to be passed in Washington, as well as state and debt financing. The states will also contribute and pay for the capacity um, that they use. And if at some point in the future there's a, a lapse in funding or a gap in funding, we're well positioned to uh, take on uh, debt finance um, uh, that portion of the overall acquisition. Now, just as more people check into hotels and get on planes, ridership for trains is improving, approaching 60% of fiscal year 2019 levels. And over July 4th weekend, demand levels reached 80% of what it was two years ago. The hope is that by delivering modern, faster trains with a fresher design, similar to what you get riding down the coast of Italy or even in Japan or China, uh, the goal is to get more passengers on board, about 1.5 million new passengers a year with this modernized fleet. These trains, Morgan, will be manufactured again by Siemens in Sacramento, California, expected to hit the market in a couple years. All right, we'll be watching Sima Modi. Thank you for bringing us that. Well, coming up, the fallout from falling interest rates. In the past month, tech is up 8%, while banks are down nearly 5 but most people expect rates to go back up eventually. So should you buy the banks now? That we're going to debate next on The Exchange. Let's end today where we began the rate dilemma. Usually when interest rates drop, so do bank stocks after starting off the year with a bang. The sector has slowed down this past month, financials that is, as rates have fallen again. So is it the hot bank trade over? Uh, my next guest says no. So with us is David Conrad, a large cap banks analyst at KBW, a Stiefel company. Uh, David, I mean, we have seen a flattening of the yield curve, which I know matters to investors in the big banks. Um, why do you still say they're a buy? Well, we think that, you know, the summer is going to be a little bit difficult. You know, I think from a macro perspective, the reflation trade got a little bit too tilted. Uh, we're, we're seeing a little bit of an unwind, which may be unnaturally pulling down the long end of the curve. Uh, we still think the backdrop is pretty good for a steepening curve as we, as we move into next year. You think about the Fed beginning to taper, um, an improving economy. That all kind of speaks to a, a steeper curve after we get through some of the, the macro trading fundamentals that are kind of working through this summer. And if you think about a steepening curve, that is the time where banks do outperform other sectors. It's not really just the short end or the long end. You know, it's more the long end steepening that drives the outperformance. So given the fact that we're going into another earnings season with some of those big bank names starting next week, what are the key factors you're watching for? And of the names you cover, what do you like the most going into the season? Yeah, we, we like Morgan Stanley the most uh, heading in both in earnings and, and longer term. Um, we think the dynamics there, it's really a transformational story. Uh, we think they have a lot of funding benefits with the E-Trade deal uh, coming through. Um, they've restructured their FIC business, which I think will you know, have more solid performance than perhaps historically. But it's really the momentum and the wealth management and, and now investment management with the E-Advanced deal. We think it's going to drive expanding ROTCEs versus a group that might be a little bit challenged near term um, with, with the flattening curve that you mentioned. So what would you stay away from? 
you know, right now, you know, what we want to stay away from is is the banks that either a have higher derivative exposure um, that's benefiting current earnings that may not be sustainable. The other aspect is who's investing in the long end of the curve right now um, in this really low rate environment. In other words, who's kind of reaching uh, for earnings? So, so you know, we we um, you know, Truist is one that's expanding their loan their securities book a little bit more than we're comfortable with, and then Regions Financial is one that has one of the more heavy uh, derivative income um, uh, benefits that we think is really not sustainable um, when we get a higher higher interest rate. Yeah. I mean, I realize this maybe this is a little bit of a longer term question, but given the fact that we are starting to see some M&A, some partnerships struck uh, as those fintech lines between the banks and the startups uh, begin to blur, or at least the competition, I should say, begins to blur. Uh, how does this continue, this landscape continue to shake out, especially since the banks are beholden to so much more regulation than some of those startups we talk about in fintech. Well, well, some of the the, the pressures that we're seeing in fintech, you know, are in the in the consumer business and, and somewhat in the in the in the perhaps lower lower income scale of, of the segment. We think one of the real pressures, both from regulation and from fintech, is in the service charge area. Uh, really, with you know heavier reliance on overdraft fees. We think that business completely transforms itself due to competitive pressures over the next couple of years. We've seen announcements, for instance, for PNC uh, restructuring their business and using technology to give the customer more control. You know, that is going to be a headwind for a lot of financials. Um, one, if they're not up to speed on the technology, but two, if they've over-relied on overdrafts uh, exposure historically. Hmm. And again, we would put regions in that camp. Okay, David Conrad. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.